Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times. I'll be your host today. And we're going to be talking about uh, this. Uh, we're going to be joining this national conversation over assisted suicide. The, uh, the energy in the conversation picked up last month or this month, actually, after California Governor Jerry Brown legalized the practice, making California the fourth state to do so. The new law is modeled after Oregon's Death with Dignity Act, which passed in 1997. It means physicians can prescribe pills to terminally ill patients to end their lives early. Indiana does not allow for assisted suicide. Today, we're going to talk about uh, this topic with uh, three experts who are joining us. David Orentlicker is a professor at the Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Rob Stone is with IU Health Hospice and Palliative Care Medicine. And George Amy is vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center in Portland, Oregon. If you want to join the program today, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat. Uh, that's at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So welcome to all of you to the program. We have two joining us by phone. So Rob's in the studio. Rob? I'm here. I'm glad good, to be here. Good to have you back. David Orentlicker has been with us before in this program, and he's joining us, even though he's a professor in Indianapolis at the IU McKinney School of Law. He's joining us from Texas, where he's at a professional meeting. And, of course, George Amy is in Oregon. So we have three different time zones represented today. So we're, we're happy to have all three with us. Um, I wanted to go to George first. Um, George, I know that uh, I, I went to your website today, and, and I believe uh, there was a quote from you, or maybe it was on your blog, where you said that words couldn't describe the atmosphere at death with dignity after California passed its law. Could you talk about the, you know, that law and why it was so important to you? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for the opportunity to help educate Indians, Indianians or, uh, <laughs> on this death with dignity law. Uh, when California's governor signed uh, the piece of legislation, first of all, let me just say, we were very, very pleased that he signed it and his signing statement as well, because we anticipated that he might receive a great deal of pressure not to sign and just let the law go into effect without signature. But he boldly went forward and said, this is something that people should have the option to do. And <clears throat> the impact uh, is somewhat immeasurable. Uh, when you figure that California, with 39 million people, uh, are now going to have this opportunity, uh, the data that will be coming out of California will uh, have an impact across the country, showing that uh, the law does work and that it works well, and that all the safeguards and protections that were placed in California's law, even a little bit more than that were in Oregon's law, uh, <clears throat> will disprove uh, the fears uh, of, of a lot of people who object to it. Now, remember, the law clearly allows for an opt-out. No one is required to use it. Doctors can opt out. Pharmacies can opt out. Hospices can opt out. Hospitals, anyone can opt out uh, of the law if they are against it for religious reasons, moral reasons, ethical reasons. No one is ever forced to use it. So we were very, very pleased that Oregon's model is now the model in California, Washington, and Vermont, making for a total of 50 million 
U.S. citizens that can avail themselves uh, of this type of option. Now, you were uh, in the state legislature in Oregon. Were you there at the time when this bill passed in Oregon? I was. Mm -hmm. I was there in both years in 1994 when it passed the first time by a margin of 51 to 49 percent and the second time when it passed by a margin of 60 to 40 percent. And, and so what uh, it sounds as if the experience in Oregon has been positive, that, that a lot of the fears and a lot of the, the um, I guess, anxiety about this law have not really come true. Correct. Mm -hmm. I, uh, one of the things that uh, we did well in Oregon was to mandate that there be annual reporting and uh, documentation uh, because we wanted to actually disprove some of those fears and, and our own concerns. What happened was we found out that the opposition said that 25 percent, first of all, 25 percent of all the people who took the medicine would wake up. Well, that has not been the case. It's been less than 1 percent, uh, if that. It's six people out of almost 1,000 people. Um, and that uh, they would be pressured into using the law. Well, it found out that it's exact opposite. It's the loved ones who want their dying uh, loved person to take another chemo, another radiation, go to Mexico for another experiment. So that has been disproved. Minorities have not been uh, uh, the subject of this. Over 95% of the people who use the law are Caucasian, and almost 50% have a bachelor's of art degree. And as far as receiving proper health care, we have also shown that uh, 93% are enrolled in hospice at the time they take the medicine. And the other fear that was said that Oregon would become the dying state, people would here, move here by the thousands to use our law. Well, in 17 years, only 13, a little over 1,300 people have actually received the medicine, and uh, about 860 have used it. Well, that's one-third of the people who get the medication never use it, and that total percentage of who do use it is less than 0.02% of all the people who die in the state of Oregon. We have 33,000 people who die in the state of Oregon every year. And when you figure that uh, in 17 years, only 860 people uh, died taking the medicine. But the one factor that is significant is that the comfort and ease of mind that knowing this option is available gives huge, huge relief to thousands of people who are dying. And that in and of itself um, justifies having such a law in the books. All right. Thank you. That's George Amy, who's vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center in Portland, Oregon. We'll have uh, George will be right back with you, but I want to bring uh, David Orenlicker onto the program. Uh, David, as I said before, is a is a professor at the IU McKinney School of Law, so he's a lawyer, but he also is an adjunct professor of medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. And before coming to IU, he served as director of the Division of Medical Ethics at the American Medical Association. For, so, David, your perspective from you know the medical ethics standpoint, and do you think that that now that California has done this, do you think that we're going to see this um, this issue coming up in a lot of other states, including our own in Indiana? Yeah, the good questions, and thank you for having me. On the first, um, you know, a lot of this 
the whole question of end-of-life care and when it's time to stop and not prolong the, the suffering of somebody who's dying. Um, you know, we can trace it back to the 1970s when the question was, can we turn off ventilators and stop dialysis? Because patients die when you do that. And, and we, starting with the Quinlan case in New Jersey, and then it spread throughout every state, that we, we do recognize that. And what's driving it is this sense that when people have a serious and irreversible disease and we, we can't do anything to cure it, um, that it, it comes to the point where we turn from prolonging life to, hate, to prolonging the dying process. And, and our society views that at, when we get to the point where people are suffering and all we're doing is prolonging their death in a, in a painful way, um, that it's okay to say, let's stop this and you know, provide palliative care and relieve my suffering, but don't try to extend a life that's, that, you know, it has lost its quality. Um, and whether you do that with withdrawal of treatment or aid in dying when you take pills, it's, it's the same sentiment. But people have worried, and, and, and that's what's slowed the uh, adoption of aid in dying is, but couldn't there be abuses and people worried about what's happened in the Netherlands? But as George says, we haven't seen that. It's been done very carefully in, in Oregon and the other states, and we've got more than 15 years of experience that it's used rarely and, and safely. And, and I think there are two important safeguards that, that explain why it's gone well here, and we haven't seen the concerns that people have worried about in the Netherlands and Belgium. And that is... Um, it's aid in dying. It's the patient has gets a prescription to take the pills. It has to be an adult who's competent, is who's not, you know, lost their ability to make medical decisions. We don't have euthanasia where you could a physician could inject a death causing drug into somebody who's, you know, has Alzheimer's disease. We don't have that here. It's just aid in dying that a competent adult has to do, and the patient has to be terminally ill. It has to be diagnosed as a you know a cancer, and that's what most I think it's eighty percent of the patients in Oregon are have cancer. It's a it's not somebody who what we see in the, again the concerns in the in Netherlands and other places is uh, with patients who aren't terminally ill and they have sometimes ill-defined medical problems. And the question is is it a psyche is it psychiatric dysfunction that's driving them rather than a a serious irreversible disease, and Oregon is protected against that in Vermont and Washington and the other states by saying you have to have a terminal disease, a, a cancer, or other serious and irreversible illness where, where death is expected within six months. So what, what about the, the, the second part of the question then? Do you think it's going to be that, that now is a time when it's going to really be on the, the public radar again and start getting a lot of discussion in various state legislatures? Yeah, I think so. And when you go back to when the Supreme Court decided there wasn't a right to aid in dying in 1997, one of the things that was clear was, you know, we don't have enough experience with it to, to, to you know, to reassure us about it. Um, on, you know, no state had, Oregon had just legalized it. And I think if you go back now and you say that in the public sees we've got more than 15 years of experience, it's gone well. It's gone well in some smaller states, now California. And I think if it, 
if when people continue to see that this is uh, an option that for people who are dying that can relieve their suffering and it can be done safely and with you know in California is a very big state and I think that will provide sufficient reassurance that other states will follow the example and maybe even the Supreme Court will say now we we are comfortable enough to say it's a we can recognize it as a fundamental right. All right, I'm going to bring Rob Stone on here in just a second, but I want to give our phone numbers again first, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We're talking about um, the uh, death and death with dignity or uh, aid in dying, right to die, assisted suicide, various names for this. Rob, um, I should say, I should tell our listeners, Rob Stone's been with us many times before talking about the Affordable Care Act and a variety of things. And uh, he spent 28 years in emergency room settings, and now he is working in hospice care and palli- palliative care. Define palliative care for me, would you? Just I'm glad you're giving me a chance to address that mm-hmm. because um, it's, it, it's not necessarily the most intuitive name to explain what we do. But uh, palliative care grew out of hospice care, and all hospice care is palliative in nature. We're focusing on reducing suffering and treating symptoms. But hospice in, uh, in the United States is limited to people who have uh, this six-month diagnosis, six-month prognosis uh, of life expectancy, which is the same number that's used in the death with dignity legislation. But we found that there are people who still are seeking treatment, who are still trying to um, move uh, forward with curative chemotherapy and surgery and so on, who can benefit from some of the same approaches. And so palliative care um, is available for people who um, are at any stage in, their, in, the, in the process of a, of a life-shortening or threatening disease, not just at the very end, which is hospice, and I do hospice work as well. Mm-hmm. So um, in your, your work in hospice, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't want to make any assumptions at all, but is this the kind of law that you would, would like for Indiana to pass? Okay, so that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I have followed this debate very closely, and I, um, and I have given some pr- public presentations around uh, Bloomington on the subject. Um, and so I've phrased it slightly differently um, to myself. Uh, I, I've tended to think, and I'd be interested to hear David's opinion on this, that, um, that Indiana may well be um, a long way away from adapting a, a law like this. But um, I've, I've also wondered, you know, how, how would I feel about being the person prescribing the medication uh, to help someone die? And this is something that I'm asked not rarely. Um, you know, in, in the work I do, it's, it's um, you know, a fairly frequent thing that someone will ask me. Um, and at this point, I say, well, Indiana doesn't have a law and, and I can't do that. And then what can we do from here to try to help relieve your suffering and, and deal with the issues that you're facing? And so I think if Indiana did pass such a law, um, I think I would probably be a, I think almost certainly I would be a prescriber, but I don't really know how it would feel until I get there. Uh, there's, There's a certain part of me that kind of gulps a little bit and thinks, wow, that's, that is a step beyond what I've done so far in my work. 
Um, and so I'll be interested to see and interested in particularly in David's opinion if he thinks there's anything likely to rise on the legislative uh, horizon here in Indiana anytime soon. David? Yeah, I, I think uh, with California, we'll see other states follow in the next few years. I wouldn't put Indiana at, at the top of my list as the next states that I think they're where we tend to be more conservative on these adopting these kinds of changes in some of the other states. So I would expect to see New York, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, uh, states like that before Indiana. Uh, but I think people will be more receptive to discussing it. And, I, and one of the things I learned in, as a legislator is you, you, it, you have to build for something like this, lay the groundwork, and so you may you. It's it, certainly reasonable to start the discussion now among legislators, and then over time, I think there will be more receptivity to it as they see that the experience works well. George, I'd like to get your reaction to what Rob said, uh, Dr. Stone said. Um, have, what's been the physician reaction in Oregon? Well, uh, he is typical of uh, what the physicians were going through in the beginning. When I first became the executive director of the organization that facilitated the implementation of Oregon's law, we had about, oh, 20, 25 doctors at the most who were willing to participate because it was so new and so strange uh, uh, that uh, it took several years of education uh, and also proving to them that palliative care and hospice care could go hand in hand with a person going through the dying process uh, and wanting this law. And that's why we show that one-third of the people who get the medication never take it. They die peacefully in hospice or, or, or receiving palliative care. So when I would reach out, I went to the uh, – Oregon only has one medical school, Oregon Health Sciences University. We would go there. We'd talk to students. We'd talk to professors. We went into uh, the medical associations, the Oregon Medical Association, and, and talked to – groups of doctors. And finally, when I left uh, and joined uh, the national uh, movement, National Center, uh, we had over 1,200 of the probably 6,000 doctors who would be eligible to do uh, death with dignity. We had over 1,200 who had participated or who were willing to participate either as the prescribing physician or the second opinion. And generally, it was the second opinion doctors who became prescribing physician after they went through the process a couple times, and they found out that uh, morally and ethically they were they were doing good for their patients instead of doing harm. Uh, and it was it was very rewarding to hear that. And I can tell you, I'm working with a doctor right now who uh, is dying of uh, geoblastoma. And he was initially opposed to the law back in 1998, and he became a prescribing physician. And now he is facing his own death uh, and uh, is going through the process. So it's, it's, uh, it's transformational. It is really a, a difficult thing to do, and I understood that. And so we were willing to uh, reach out and educate physicians, nurses, hospices, when we first started, hospices were totally opposed to this, absolutely opposed. 
it took me about three, four years of going to hospice after hospice to uh, educate them on that this was not an either-or situation. People could take hospice. And then when they found out that because the person felt more comfortable talking to their hospice personnel about their pain and suffering, because they knew they had this option, hospices throughout the state then became uh, participants. In fact, many hospice personnel now are present when the person takes uh, the lethal dose of medication, which, by the way, just as an aside, Mm -hmm. is not a pill, it's not a bunch of pills. It is prescribed in the form sometimes of pills that are separated and dissolved into four four to five ounces of water or applesauce. And now we have a new protocol that is totally liquid. Uh, And so it's it's not, and it has to be self-administered by, of course. No one can inject you, no one can pour it down your throat, no one can pour it down your feeding tube. You must be able to do it yourself. All right, we're gonna we're, we're about at halftime, and I think we I, I have a lot more questions, but they're gonna take long answers, I'm sure, because it's a very difficult difficult issue that we're talking about today. We're talking about uh, California's new Death with Dignity Act that's based on on Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. We have uh, three guests with us. Rob Stone is here in the studio with me, and David Orentlicker, professor of, I, of at the IU McKinney School of Law, and an adjunct. Uh, or an adjunct professor at the at the medical school in Indianapolis is joining us by phone from Texas, where he is at a professional meeting. And George Amy, vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center in Portland, Oregon, is also here. We hope you'll join us uh, after we take this short break. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times. We're going to jump right back into our conversation about uh, death with dig- dignity. And, uh, you know, we have three guests that I introduced right before we went to break. If you want to join the program, though, if you have a call or a question, please, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, Dr. Rob Stone, I wanted to ask you about uh, what George Amy just said when he was talking about um, talking with, with hospice physicians and talking with doctors and and being able to um, convince them, I, guess, I don't know if convince is the right word, but have them see that, that 
um, they were doing good for their patients instead of doing harm because you as a physician, the Hippocratic Oath is what you stand by. First is the first line that says, first, do no harm. I mean, how do you, how do you judge whether um, assisting someone in dying is the right thing or perhaps doing harm? Well, right now I have, you know, a lot of experience with um, helping patients and families decide things like withdrawing ventilators, um, and um, and we have patients. Um, you know, we have a hospice house in Bloomington with uh, with twelve rooms where people sometimes uh, may go uh, when they're near the end, and sometimes there's a lot of suffering, and so we give sometimes very, very large doses of, um, of medication to people, <clears throat> um, and even to the point of basically making people unconscious uh, who seem to be suffering a lot, particularly with cancer pain um, as they're dying. And, and that has become something I'm very comfortable doing and I think you know, reasonably skillful at doing. Um, <clears throat> I, 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 and it's and I, I, I was I was um, I was pleased when, when George said that uh, my position is typical because there is still a little part of me that um, um, says okay so now it's going to be a little different to write a prescription for someone who is walking and talking and maybe not walking but talking and and um, it's going to be a little different, uh, but I, I, like I said, I think I'm not going to know until for sure until I've I've done it. But I suspect I I'm actually fairly confident that I would go ahead and write that prescription because uh, I do I do have that experience right now of people who are very articulate in telling me why they understand that they're dying. Um, they may be having a fair amount of suffering right now. They see more suffering coming ahead, and um, they want to make this choice, um, which in some ways seems like a big difference from what I already do, but in other ways it seems like an insignificant difference from what I already do. Mm-hmm. All right, we've had a... Yeah, sure. Oh, wait, we have everybody wants, wants to get on this one. Let's go with David first and then George. Okay. David? Yeah, so I, I'll give you a couple of ex- I, I've never had experience myself, but other doctors, one, uh, a close friend who was treated treated patients with kidney disease and had a patient who was on dialysis for many years and came to the point that she wanted to stop her dialysis. The, you know, the quality of life just wasn't deteriorated. And, you know, after a number of discussions, he felt that this was her, you know, thoughtful and considered decision and it was her right to to refuse unwanted treatment. And so they made the arrangements and they stopped the dialysis. But it would take a couple of weeks for her to die. And, uh, you know, at some point into the, those two weeks, the suffering, she started become, suffering from, you know, the, her kidney failure that wasn't being treated with the dialysis. And, and, and that, you know, question came up. It wasn't legal, so he couldn't do it. But he, but he felt that if he was going to really meet her needs in terms of suffering, that's what he would have had to do, and that by not doing that, in a way, it was causing harm to her. Or the other situation you have is somebody who's maybe had a serious cancer, gone through a lot of chemotherapy, and, and that has side effects too, and, 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 and now you're suffering from the side effects, and maybe you know the, the usual medications aren't sufficient, 
Well, if you can't then, you know, as a last resort, provide a prescription for pills, in some sense, you're abandoning the patient at a time of need where you, if you can't provide them the care that they need to relieve their suffering. George? Well, what I was going to say to Dr. Stone is, is what he is, the thought process he's going through, uh, I saw the change in several doctors when total sedation or terminal sedation, whatever you want to call it, where you address the pain and suffering of the individual with large doses of pain management with the intent to address the pain, knowing full well that the likelihood death will occur, is what is practiced predominantly uh, in the United States already when it comes to addressing pain. And what doctors in Oregon started saying was, well, wait a minute, if, if my intent is just to address pain and yet I know intellectually and medically that death will occur, then all I'm doing in prescribing this pain, this, this medication under Oregon's death with dignity law is to, to recognize that my intent is still just to address the pain and suffering. So I think that's where that struggle occurs in many doctors, and it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. But I saw the transformation in many physicians when they recognized, yes, I, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I feel comfortable in addressing this person's suffering. Now, remember, pain is not necessarily the, the primary reason for people using the law. Primary reason for pe- people using the law is the loss of autonomy or the fear of loss of autonomy, and that's the sort of the loss of a quality of life that has become acceptable to them. And pain is way down because, as Dr. Stone said, we can address pain. We can address pain to the point where we put the person in a coma- comatose state, but that's still not the quality of life that person wants. We've had a question come in from Twitter, um, and it says, disability, well, it's actually a comment, disability rights advocates lead the opposition to assisted suicide, and uh, sort of chastising us for having no representation from that uh, group of people here. I would say two things about that, I guess. One is, if anyone out there is a disability rights advocate, that we would be happy to hear from them to give us a call. And uh, two, I just want the um, reactions from well, all three of our panelists, but particularly George um, and David, as uh, from your perspectives about um, this comment that disability rights advocates lead the opposition to to this. There is a small group of uh, disabled individuals called a not yet dead yet group, and they are very vocal about their opposition. However, the largest uh, disabled uh, disabilities group uh, organization in the United States, the National Dis- uh, Disabilities Group, supports this law, and its executive director is supportive of the law, and so are the rank and file. We've specifically addressed that issue. In 1999, because the Not Dead Yet group came to us and said that you are denigrating the existence of our, our, you're denigrating our very existence by saying that that uh, people can use this law um, 
and most of them are in some ways disabled. Of course, you're disabled when you're having a terminal diagnosis that no longer allows you to do those things that you would normally do, but it's a totally different disability uh, it, it, at the end of which you're going to die, and it's different than having uh, some type of disability that may require you to have a wheelchair or some other types of disabilities. So. So we put in the law in 1999 to address that. I specifically uh, amended the law to say no person may use the law solely based upon a disability or age so that they – and yet that did not satisfy this, this uh, small vocal group, and I, that was unfortunate. And I, I am one of the strongest advocates for uh, disability rights. I sponsored bill after bill. Uh, protecting it, ensuring it, uh, and access. Uh, and so I would be the last person to ever denigrate uh, that group of people. So the protections are there, and uh, uh, it's just unfortunate that they are unwilling to see that. Just so uh, to clarify for me, George, it, it sounds like the, the law in Oregon and perhaps in California, which is so similar, that first of all, a, a physician would have to prescribe the medication. It sounds like the diagnosis would have to be that this is terminal within six months. Is that what you said earlier? Yeah, the, the, the process is very easy. Mm -hmm. First of all, it must be the person who raises the issue and makes the request. Then they have to have two physicians say that they are mentally competent and that they have a diagnosis that's terminal and a prognosis of less than six months. They must go through two uh, oral requests and a written request, and they must be able to self-administer. So there are a lot of safeguards, and, and the time, the average length of time from first request to, to taking the medicine is around 45 days. So it's not, you can't just call up a doctor and say, give me the prescription. It's just impossible. We make sure that the person is mentally alert, knowing. And, then, and in California, one of the other safeguards that we put into the bill was that uh, 48 hours prior to the person's intended uh, taking of the medication, they must fill out a form saying that they are intending to take it, they know the consequences, no one has coerced them to do so, and that must be uh, turned into the physician as well. So there's all kinds of protections. All right. David, do you want to add anything to that? No, I'd, like to, I'd just like to reinforce. George is exactly right. The safeguards in these states, California and Oregon and Washington or Vermont, um, the terminal illness requirement is so critical because it really does distinguish the person who's got a a disability that they could live for many years, uh, they, whether in a wheelchair or, uh, or with other aids, from somebody who's really in the dying process. And, 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 and the reality is, so we haven't seen that the kind of problem that the disability rights advocates have raised in, California, in Oregon and other states. But, but when you don't have that, lim that eligibility threshold of terminal illness, then yes, it does. The problems do arise, and we see it with the refusal of life-sustaining treatment. There are a number of cases of people who have broken their necks and become quadriplegic and ventilator-dependent, and have 
you know, raise the question of turning off their ventilator. And, and, and there have been serious questions about part of the reason why they've asked for that is because they're not getting sufficient support, social supports, and that, you know, they feel like they it's not worth living. And then when assistance comes forward, they change their mind. So, yes, we do have to worry about that, but, but that's... But, because we limit um, aid and dying to terminal illness, it, the problem hasn't come up in that setting. Let me ask a, a question about uh, advanced directives. I mean, when you talk about the situation you described where someone, a ventilator is keeping someone alive, would, would an advanced directive take care of that for that person? That is, if they don't want to be kept alive by uh, artificial means? In Oregon, first of all, uh, we have two two things. We have advanced directives, which are about nationally recognized about 70% of the time they're recognized by uh, EMTs and physicians, about 30% not recognized. So they're not totally reliable, but we do, of course, encourage people. But they have, uh, they have no legal effect when it comes to uh, whether or not to use Oregon's death with dignity law. You cannot right. have a surrogate. Uh, but when it comes to with uh, holding uh, hydration and nutrition, or when it comes to uh, withholding life support systems, yes, you can direct, you can have a durable power of attorney to do that. The other one that is the most significant, and Oregon was the first state to introduce uh, what's called a PULTS form. Uh, and in Oregon, that's, uh, that stands for Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And in Oregon, it's a bright bright pink form in washington now it's a bite bite green and california uh, some might think another pink or something but now it's swept the country uh and you're going to find that pulse forms are all almost every state now uh, i think indiana has one but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and so these forms are signed by the physician and in those forms when you are facing an end-of-life issue they have about 95% uh, uh, that are respected in those forms because when you have it over your bed or over your bathroom door or whatever and the EMT comes in, they're honoring that. No life support, no DNR, that type of thing. Uh, and so, yeah, I was just I was trying to draw the distinction between uh, the six month diagnosis for the Death with Dignity Act yeah. and and the fact that there are other possibilities for Correct. patients here. Doctor Stone, well, I just wanted to put in a plug for Indiana's law, which uh, instead of post is post physicians orders for scope of treatment, but it's based on the same laws and it's been in place now for about two and a half years in Indiana, and it's a uh, advanced directive form that I use quite a bit in my work. Um, in fact, I think I signed two or three posts this week. <laughs> um, but um, the post form in Indiana and, and nationally is not necessarily for every single person who is thinking about what um, they may want at end of life. Uh, it's really for people who are facing a life-threatening or life-shortening illness. Um, uh, and so it's a very specific form, um, and it's not something that you know, every listener here needs to run out and do, although I always advise people to do advanced directives 
you know, when you're 18 years old, you can do an advanced directive. But the post form is specific, is very specific for people who are facing a life-threatening or life-shortening illness. All right. We have a phone call from um, Brown County, and it's Sandy from Brown County. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. I like. I am against the death penalty, but and I would like to know, though, why the drug you're using for self-directed death cannot be used in those cases and not be as traumatic as they seem to be. Okay. Good question. So, the question is, you know, the death penalty, of course, is very controversial. This drug uh, could it be used by states? As a, in, in a death penalty case? Well, first of all, it is one of the drugs that is used in the death penalty cases, and that's why we no longer can get it. <laughs> uh, and that's why we had to come up with a new combination of prescribed uh, medication that would never be used in a death penalty case because uh, they have to be in series of combination and cannot be used uh, intravenously. Uh, it, the, the drug was penobarbital. Penobarbital no longer can, comes to the United States because we have a death penalty. Uh, the uh, manufacturer in Europe has refused based upon the fact that the botched uh, death penalty case, I think it was in New Mexico, I can't, I can't remember, or Oklahoma, one of them, uh, they refused to send it. So now we've been... and. Cicobarbital, which is the other barbiturate that was used, is, is the one that comes in pill form, and we separate the pills and take the powder out, is now become cost-prohibitive, uh, ranging. Uh, we used to be able to get 10 grams uh, for, for about $200. Now it's over 3000 to $5,000. And so we've been forced uh, to go to this new formula, which is working quite well. It cost around $450. All right. Sandy, I guess that's our best answer for you. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for the call. We have about 10 more minutes to go. If you want to give us a call, uh, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I know this is very this is all a very controversial topic, um, but I listened to the three of you talk about it very rationally, and and it seems as if um, having the option available sounds plausible. You you know the one uh, Twitter, uh, the one tweet we had about disability rights advocates. I think you addressed that very very well. So what what is the opposition, George? Can you start that conversation? Well, what is the opposition to this? The main opposition is religious beliefs and we believe we have addressed that by providing the absolute right to opt out and in many many cases uh, I have told people I respect your religious beliefs please just respect that I have the right to do this that's all I ask in return I have been honored and to be at the bedside of more than four dozen people who have taken this medicine. And I have been confronted by those who uh, are religiously opposed, and all I ask is what I just said. Uh, because I can tell you the courage of the individuals who do this, who take that last drink, 
is the most incredible courage in the world. I want the option, but I don't know if I could do it. I, I just, you, you just don't know. You just don't know until you face that time. So the religious opposition is number one. The Catholic Church in particular spends millions and millions of dollars. Wherever we go in California, they spend millions of dollars uh, trying to oppose the law. In Massachusetts, we lost by uh, 51 to 49 percent in the in the 2012 election, and the Catholic Church poured in millions of dollars. So it's in Oregon they did, yeah. We were outspent three to one in Oregon, uh, but we won that first time by 51 to 49 percent. And then, of course, the second tier of opposition are are uh, uh, politicians who are. Uh, very conservative in their beliefs about uh, uh, this because they believe the sanctity of life. So religion is mixed with their political beliefs, and but they sometimes have a larger platform from which to express their opinions. Those are the two primary okay. ones uh, that we have run into over the years. Okay. Uh, we have a phone call I think might be somewhat related to this question, too, but Jack from Bloomington, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I've heard a couple of the people uh, talk about how the doctors at first <clears throat> resist the idea of giving a, uh, a pill that will hasten death. Uh, but then once they get used to it, it's okay. I'm concerned about if the public in general goes through the same process, won't we feel as individuals pressure to make use of it. And I know that one of the speakers said that loved ones don't in fact pressure, but I'm talking about internal pressure. As somebody like myself, I'm in my 80s, uh, I don't think it's right to hasten death in that fashion, but I would look at the cost, it's costing everybody, the pain is costing everybody, and I, I think I feel very considerable pressure. Uh, to make use of this uh, this means. And I think that's a, a source of concern. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Dr. Stone, you want to uh, take a shot at that? I think that's a very <clears throat> valid and thoughtful concern. Um, I think that um, um, one of the I think uh, really admirable things about the way they've thing, done things in Oregon is, uh, and George has alluded to this, the the, the transparency and the um, uh, significant efforts to try to um, make this an open process. And I, and and so I'm, I'm going to say one more thing, and then maybe turn, ask George to 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 speak to this too. Um, but um, yeah. I think that so far we haven't really seen that happening, but but uh, but what uh, the listener Jack mentioned is 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 a real concern. Now, I also want to put this in a little bit different perspective for Jack. Um, there is, you know, a, 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 a friend of mine um, in uh, Seattle is a, a palliative care physician named Tony Back, and um, many years ago he published a piece public in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, it, that in the state of Washington they did a poll of physicians and this is many years ago um, I think it was 12% of physicians ref um, uh, reported having 
had requests for uh, physician-assisted in dying. Um, and so I think that so this is not a, a, a rare thing to come up. And so uh, many physicians right now um, feel on humanitarian terms that they want to help their patients, but in states like Indiana, um, it is totally locked in, in, in secrecy and privacy. It's a totally non-transparent process where physicians are afraid of being charged with abetting in a murder. Uh, patients are afraid um, uh, that they're going to get their loved ones in trouble. Uh, their, their, their wives and children who, who want to help them uh, in this difficult time, but they don't, wanna, they don't want their loved ones to be charged with assisting in a murder. And so the non-transparent current situation to me is actually one of the strongest arguments for the transparent process that uh, the death with dignity laws um, seem to provide. It sounds as if you're, Jack's concern is about the pressure that f people will feel, and it sounds like you're saying people already feel pressure, but just in a different direction. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, know, I think Jack is exactly right. You know, the idea that when you give people a right to die, it can become a duty to die. We, we clearly have to worry about that. But um, I would say, you know, we've in some sense, we, we've had that a greater concern with withdrawal of treatment, that when somebody's on a ventilator or dialysis, the, the cost of their care can, you know, hundreds of thousands and sometimes in the millions of dollars. And, and we've, we've rec we, we understand that that can happen and we, um, you know, do the best we can to protect against it. Um, and, and we've been comfortable with with giving these rights, even knowing we have to worry about the risk, but and, and with the death and dying, um, aid and dying, we're not seeing it. it. It certainly is something we have to worry about, but we, we're not seeing evidence of that because of the strict safeguards. So, so yes, we you know any time you make a change like this, you have to weigh benefits and risks, and and what we've seen is that the benefits outweigh the risks. George, thirty seconds. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, we took Jack's concern very seriously, and uh, the process uh, requires private consultation with physicians to make sure that there is no coercion or undue pressure internally or externally. That insurance, 95% uh, of these people have health insurance that covers the expenses, so there's not a depletion of one's asset. The hospice 95% in hospice, making sure that their, their quality of life is such that it is closest to acceptable as possible so they don't feel any pressure to do this whatsoever. And the fact, the data shows one-third get the medicine, never take it. Therefore, the pressure is not there. And the numbers, they're very, very low. And so this indicates to us uh, that even internal pressure is not making people use this law at all. All right. Thank you. We are out of time. That was uh, George Amy, the vice president of the Death with Dignity National Center in Portland, Oregon, joining us today by phone. Thank you also to Rob Stone, Dr. Rob Stone, and David Orenlicker. I appreciate both of them being here. For uh, producer Drew Dodlin and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times, a podcast of this and other WFIU programs 
is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company. Fiber internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.